Welcome to the TechInnex CEO Peer Group recording for May 2020. I'm Ryan Ellis. Uh, today's session uh, was amazing, and I really want to thank uh, Rosanna Berardi of Berardi Immigration Law in Buffalo, New York. Um, she came in and discussed uh, what is going on with the uh, current situation with the American-Canadian border, um, visas, uh, the frame of mind of the American people, and what is going on uh, within uh, New York State and within Buffalo. So thank you once again, Rosanna. And we had Julie Bryden and Ryan Malloy from CFIB, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, discussing um, what's going on with government, uh, the plans and the actions that they're taking on um, and what they are speaking to and how they're helping out their members and also talking about the CEWS and uh, other loans and implementations that the government has put in place to help out uh, businesses across Canada. So enjoy the the, the listen uh, this morning and uh, we hope you have a great weekend. So enjoy. Um, happy to be here. I was telling Ryan, I don't know if any of you follow U.S. football, but the sun's a little brighter today because the Buffalo Bills schedule came out last night. Yeah, go Bills! Um, and there's four primetime games, which is a big deal for a sports town like Buffalo. So that's what is getting uh, Buffalonians excited. So, um, so I just want to give you a quick update on border stuff. And feel free to interrupt me with questions or concerns that you have. Um, so as we all know, the U.S.-Canadian border remains closed. Um, it's closed until May 21st. That's the official date right now. But I suspect in the next week or so that we're going to see an extension of that date. Um, here in New York State, we're not close to being open at all. Um, the, the extension for New York State, I'm sorry, the pause for New York State expires on May 15th. We're expecting that to be extended as well. So things are not quite ready to open up the U.S.-Canadian border. My prediction is we probably won't see it until end of June, um, until we see kind of both sides of the border, both Canada and the U.S. starting to reopen on a phased level. But what does it mean that the border's closed? Um, it means a lot of different things. And I've been in constant communication with the management here at the Peace Bridge Port of Entry in Buffalo. And it's super interesting because they shut down the border for what they call all non-essential travel, which is tourism and recreation. They don't want people going back and forth out for dinner, to the casino, to visit family. But at the same time, they are hugely encouraging regarding essential commerce, trade, and travel. So when I spoke to the port director at the Peace Bridge, he said, listen, we don't want people going back and forth for fun, but we still want travel and trade going back and forth. So if you have any type of legitimate business reason that has to do with any type of contract or maybe after sale service that's in the United States, don't automatically count that out. Um, it's something that I encourage you all to give a little bit of thought to and reach out to me. I can even run it by the management ahead of time. I mean, I can never guarantee what they're going to do, but I can always take their temperature in terms of what they will tolerate. But they're very much committed to the flow of commerce, trade, and travel. Um, in terms of, of 
you know, how they define that, it's pretty inconsistent. And we're seeing people, you know, some days they're going in to visit, you know, because we have so many what I call cross-border couples, um, Canadians engaged to Americans or vice versa. Some people are able to go to Canada or come to the U.S. to visit their significant other. Um, and then other times they're not. It's largely discretionary on that side. But in terms of the business side, we're seeing pretty consistent adjudication. So I have one question about crossing the border on compassionate grounds. For example, I have a friend whose father unfortunately passed away in the United States. Customs and Border Protection will surely let you cross the border for that purpose. Um, they are still very much big proponents of letting people in for significant humanitarian reasons. So it can't be to go to your cousin's wedding or you know, visit a family member, but surely if there's a death in the family or somebody who's critically ill, you can certainly enter the United States for that purpose. That's all about documentation. Um, I just had a client had to do the same exact thing from Toronto, had a family member in the New York area. We had to get the, the death certificate and we had to show that there was an actual plan. Person was coming in, you know, for three or four days to attend services, limited services, um, and then going back to Canada. So anything that's extreme like that, feel free to reach out. We can certainly get you in front of the government um, for them to assist. Another thing to note, ooh, hold on, I think there's an, oh, okay. Another thing to note is that the government on the U.S. side and the Canadian side are still issuing work permits. So we have several clients that have secured their TN or their L1 at the border. Now, the only thing to know about that, it's business as usual in terms of, of the business applications, but the only thing to know about that, if you or somebody that you know is going to apply for that TN work permit, the minute you step foot in the United States, which is required for that type of application, if you're going to flag, what we call flagpole, get your work permit and immediately go back to Canada, Canada is requiring you to have a significant plan to self-quarantine for 14 days. So sometimes we have people that want to get their TN and then just return home to Canada. So the next time they need to enter in a week or so, they can just show it and go. You can't do that right now. You've got to be able to commit to that 14-day self-quarantine. And I've got to tell you, the Canadians are playing hardball on this one. Um, you've got, you have to have a plan. It means you can't go anywhere. You've got to stay there for 14 days. You can't go to school, work, any other public areas. Um, you have to have somebody pick up your groceries for you. You can't have visitors. And failure to do this is subject to an insanely expensive fine. I think it's $750,000, which is insane. Um, and I haven't heard of them leveraging this fine, but obviously the message is the Canadian government isn't messing around here. And they want people that are entering Canada from the United States to have a plan to self-quarantine. So this is coming up a lot for our clients that are in the U.S. already. So I have a lot of clients that are either, um, they're all Canadian origin, Canadian citizens, but they either have work permits 
they're green card holders. Um, I have a CEO that's working in Florida now, and he lives in Guelph, Ontario, um, and he wanted to come home for the weekend to visit his family and then just come back to the United States. And I said to him, nope, not advisable at this time because you've got to remain in Canada for those 14 days and self-quarantine, which he wasn't really happy about. And this issue keeps coming up over and over. We get at least one call or email a day about that. So, you know, the takeaway to this is really knowing that if you do step foot in the United States or you're coming in, you know, a lot of people have what we call after sales requirements. So you sold a product or a piece of equipment to the United States and a contract or warranty requires you to come in to either set it up, supervise training. You can still come in and do that. The government's going to let you come in. It's just on your return to Canada where you're going to have a problem and be forced to self-isolate. Crystal clear on that. Any questions? Good. Okay. All good on that. So, you know, as summer approaches, a lot of people are getting really antsy about cottages and travel back and forth. I mean, the busiest times at the U.S.-Canadian border are the months of July and August. I mean, they see traffic, you know, quadrupling during those months because there's so many people going back and forth for pleasure. And, and here in Buffalo, there's a ton of people that have cottages in Crystal Beach, Fort Erie, or a lot of people rent the same cottage for the same week in July every year for 25 years. So there's a lot of questions about, you know, when will that be open? And as I said at the beginning, if I had to look into a crystal ball, I'm thinking end of June, beginning of July. Um, it seems like the government's trying to get some things in place, doing phased rollouts and openings, getting people comfortable, but they don't want a barrage of people because as you know, in cottage country, most cottage towns are small that have very limited medical resources. And the government's concerned about letting people go in and out of the United States and Canada, COVID spiking, and then being in areas where there is not sufficient health care. So I think we're going to wait a little bit further into the summer, probably end of June, beginning of July, to see that type of recreational travel being allowed. And it's really anyone's best guess. Here in New York State, um, it seems like the criteria for reopening changes every day. And the problem in New York is that we're lumped in with New York City, which obviously has a way more serious problem than your county, which is, you know, home in Buffalo, New York. So we'll see how that all shakes out. Um, in terms of immigration in general, we have a super, super interesting political tension right now. Um, before COVID-19, as you all remember, um, the United States economy was booming. We had a historic, historically low unemployment rates, things that we'd never seen in this country for a long, long time. You know, less than 3% of America was, un was unemployed. And we saw just, you know, record number of jobs and tons of new investments in the United States. The Trump administration was rolling out the red carpet for foreign investors, um, which you may know as the E1 or E2 category. Those are investors making a substantial capital investment in the United States. And we saw the, the red carpet being rolled out. And then mid-March, 
hit. And basically, um, the, the switch was flipped and we started getting these insane levels of unemployment with so many companies laying off. So why is that relevant to the United States economy? Well, obviously, everybody's anxiously awaiting in probably the next half hour, the, um, the, the numbers for the April unemployment rate are coming out today. And April is the first month of you know, post-COVID. So we'll see what those look like. But roughly 33 million Americans are unemployed, which is about 10% of the country. And if the, if the analysts are correct, um, we will be at a level very close to, to what, we, what this country has seen in the Great Depression. So what does that mean for border crossing? What does that mean for immigration? Well, let's remember what year we're in, folks. It's 2020. We've got a presidential election literally around the corner. And we're not seeing the insane and intense campaign ads and the, the advertisements that we would normally see at this time of the year because obviously every politician is focused on COVID. But we can't forget that there'll be a, a pretty contested election in the United States come November, and President Trump has made no bones about it, at least on the first campaign trail, that immigration's an issue that he wants to control. Um, I've been doing this for 23 years, Every administration comes in, guns a-blazing, we're gonna change immigration. We've got too many foreign workers stealing jobs in America. This is ridiculous. And every administration that comes and goes, comes and goes, can't fix immigration. And why is that? It's because there is a super duper political issue. Because while it's true that we have millions of Americans that will now be unemployed or are unemployed, um, there are many occupations in the United States that are continuously shortage occupations. And we see that in the IT sector, um, computers, de uh, developers, analysts. We see that in the medical profession. It doesn't matter if our unemployment rate is at 70%. Those areas still have shortages. So what does this mean? Well, we saw it last month. President Trump at 11 o'clock at night decided to send out a tweet saying, we're stopping all immigration to the United States, um, which I love late night tweets like that. I really do. <laughs> As at midnight, my phone is blowing up from all clients, colleagues like, oh my God, what does this mean? And then the, the best part of that is I have no clue what it means because it's a tweet and somebody right now is throwing together an executive order that says God knows what. Um, so we saw that in mid-April and, and ultimately, in my opinion, and I always try to talk very politically neutral, but that suspension of green cards was really just largely symbolic. When it actually came time to look at that executive order, there, it really affected literally a handful of people, not a handful, probably about 20,000 people. And it was basically the government saying, we're not gonna issue green cards for the next 60 days for people that are outside of the United States that are waiting. Again, didn't affect a lot of people, but certainly got a good sound bite. And certainly got a lot of traction in the media that the Trump administration was furthering their immigration agenda. Now, we don't think it's going to stop there. 
I think in the next 30 days, we're going to see another executive order pertaining to immigration in the United States. And this time, I think we're going to see some of the temporary ways of coming to the United States. There's a category called an H-1B. Um, there's an investor category called an EB-5. Those categories have been controversial since the sands of time. And it's because for the EB-5, you can basically spend millions of dollars and get a green card um, in the United States. And the H-1B is used by a lot of tech workers. And there's a whole faction of American tech workers that say, we don't need any foreign tech workers. We shouldn't have these folks here. So my prediction in the next 30 days, we're going to see another tightening. Um, in terms of NAFTA, or the USMCA, as it's called now, as far as we can tell, that's not going to be impacted on this list. Um, I think statutorily, it's very difficult for them to change a treaty um, without the agreement of Canada and Mexico. So I think the NAFTA treaty will be largely untouched. And I think we'll still be able to transfer our L1s, which are intra-company intra transferees, as well as the temporary investors, the E1s and E2s. But the long and short of this is immigration isn't going anywhere. And the closer we get to the election, the more you're going to see of this. You're going to see President Trump playing to the base of we don't need any foreign workers. We've got all these unemployed Americans. Why are we going to let foreign workers in? And I can tell you why, and it's because we have massive shortages in certain sectors. So don't count yourself out if you're thinking of making that move to the United States or sending one of your employees or setting up a U.S. operation. But be careful in terms of paying attention to what's going on. And I'm happy I'll share any of my border updates with Ryan. Um, Ryan I'll, is very, very nice about sharing our LinkedIn stuff to, to the group. Um, but I'll certainly stay on that. But my prediction is we're going to see something and it's going to be more severe than the last executive order, which you know, didn't really affect a lot of people because the, the common political tone, whether we're gonna see it only from Trump or possibly Biden as well, um, is that this isn't the time for the US to bring in more foreign workers. So it's super interesting from a political perspective because no politician wants to say, hey, we need more people in the United States when we've got all of our own unemployed. But at the same time, we're seeing legislation, um, proposed legislation saying, hey, let some foreign doctors come in because we don't have doctors in the United States right now to handle all of the COVID cases. So there's always that tension. There will always be. And that's why I keep saying in my lifetime, I do not suspect the law to change. Um, the immigration law has not changed in any meaningful way since 1997. Think about that. It's 23 years ago. Um, so it doesn't change very frequently. What's changed with the Trump administration is um, some of the implementation and the policies and all of these executive orders, which I don't care what side of the aisle you're on in the United States, executive orders are not a good thing. It circumvents the entire spirit and intent of democracy and Congress making the law. But nonetheless, when Congress won't act, we see our presidents, you know, jumping to the executive orders, which super interestingly, every time Trump does an executive order on immigration, it gets kicked up through the court system. 
And every single time the Trump administration has won. And the reason for that is that the US Constitution says the president has the right to control our borders. It's very simple and it's very clear. So here a lot of, you know, it's going to court, the tr when the travel bans came out, we saw that, you know, are they in effect, are they not? It went all the way up to the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, hey, we may not like this, we may not like how this sounds or feels, but our constitution allows for it. So, you know, a lot of these things, people come in and say, well, it, it will never stand legally. It normally does. Um, so long and short of all of this is be aware, but don't count yourself out. The United States still wants businesses to come in, still wants that trade and commerce. Um, they will let people in a humanitarian way. And we are going to see more immigration stuff. It's not going away. It's good for people like me. I'm a nerd. I love this stuff. I love to see what's coming on, even though I hate those late night tweets because it just makes everybody unnecessarily scared. Um, but we're going to see more and more of that. And as things continue to evolve, I'm happy to keep you all up to date. And if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Rosanna, I have one. What about uh, visas in process right now? Are you seeing, are they being slowed up or just only because of, you know, uh, skeleton crews, that type of thing? Not on purpose, but what's the traffic like? Yeah, so all of the, the visas that are issued outside of the United States at the U.S. consulates or embassies, that's all been suspended. But we have seen the consulates and embassies starting to open up appointments for mid-June and beyond. So right now, so if you are an investor coming to the United States and you want to make your investment, you need to get an a E2 visa from the U.S consulate in Toronto. So right now, the calendar is open this week and we're just grabbing any appointment we can get for mid-June with the asterisk to our clients saying, we're not 100% certain that this is going to happen, but we're seeing that things are starting to reopen. And then within the United States, we have a lot of clients applying for extensions or renewals. And right. shockingly, those applications are being turned around very quickly like in an unprecedented way. And I think that might be because some of those numbers are down. A lot of people are afraid or not sure if they can file. Um, but things that would take like six months to get a response on are now taking like two months, which is really bizarre. Um, okay. I will never figure out the mindset of the United States government, but when things move quickly, we're happy. So um, we are telling our clients that are in the US um, if you do have something coming up that needs to be extended or renewed, you can do that six months in advance of the expiration. So don't wait. And we're pretty busy right now because people want to make sure that they can get it in while you still can. And I think we'll always still be able to, but there is a little bit of a veiled threat. So people that would normally start working on an application, say in August, are working on it now because a, everybody has a lot of time, and B, they just want to make sure it's in. Okay. Any big questions, anybody? Hey, Rosanna, it's Ryan. I know we talked about this earlier, but what's the mindset of the people of Buffalo? How's uh, is everybody's spirit still up and everybody's still happy and doing their yeah. thing? Uh, yeah, you know, as time has passed, um, 
I've seen a significant increase in traffic and I've seen a significant increase in people going out um, and going out. I mean, where can we go? We can go to parks. Um, we can go to Walmart, but there seems to be, people seem to be done with staying indoors. And I think if the weather ever turns, uh, we've had a few nice days, days here and there and the parks have been absolutely packed. Um, you know, we're, we're getting mixed messages. The majority of deaths that have occurred in the, in the Buffalo metro area have been in nursing homes. So when people hear that, I think they feel like they're in the clear and maybe they are, we don't know. Um, but people seem, you know, Buffalo is a city of good neighbors and people are generally happy, but people are ready, ready. I'm ready to go back to my office. Um, remote work is fine, but I really just miss the camaraderie and uh, just the chit chat. Uh, Prasad, you had a question? Yeah. Hi, Rosanna. Um, Hi. A very close friend of mine's son has graduated here from Waterloo and he's got a, his first job in the U.S. in California. And the expectation is that they'll start the first week of August. Now, I'm sure all the visas and, are, and all of those still have to be done. But if there's a, a challenge now with foreign workers coming in, and he's not coming in as, uh, you know, he's coming in as a, uh, an engineer going into a, a startup. So there's mm -hmm. two things. One, it's a startup. <laughs> two, it's in California. So we don't know what the rules around California are. And three, right. the issues around the actual uh, visas and immigration. I'd love to hear your opinion on on where do you think that would be considering it's still two months out? Yeah, so my guess is if he's coming from University of Waterloo and he's an engineer, he would qualify under the TN category, which is pursuant to NAFTA or the USMCA. Um, I think from an purely an immigration perspective, he would be able to apply and secure his TN work permit. Now, the fact that it's a startup concerns me because a lot of startups are not starting up anymore, um, you know, because of the economy. And startups can be difficult to convince the government um, because there's just no record of success, right? So sometimes when you have an offer of employment from a U.S. source, the government wants to make sure that that U.S. source is able to pay um, the, the TN workers. So, I mean, all things being equal, I would suspect that he would be eligible, um, for his TN. And I think in August, I think I'm hoping, I mean, California has started to reopen actually today in Los Angeles County, they're starting to reopen some retail and some things. So I think he's got a good chance just dependent on what happens with that startup. Go ahead, Catherine. Hi, Rosanna. Well, first of all, thank you everyone for allowing me to jump in on this call. Um, but I wanted to ask a quick question. I am in the U.S. and have a 12-month employment authorization. Okay. I've had a conversation with a few employers, and because the immigration information and messages are very complex, I'm getting a little bit of resistance and caution, a little bit of concern from them. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if you have any suggestions in terms of what my information might I have um, going into those kinds of conversation to calm some of those nerves um, that they might have, even though I don't really apply with the areas of concern that are going on mm -hmm. right now, but what might I be able to share with them to kind of reassure them? So do you have an EAD card? Yes. Okay. And is that so I would, 
there's no way that anybody knows exactly what's going to happen. Um, but what I would say is you have status right now. Um, are you able to extend your EAD card beyond the 12 months? No, I would need to start the process for some kind of work visa past that point. And they're aware of that. And I think that might be where the caution comes in. Okay. Um, well, we should have a conversation offline because it's largely dependent on the types of jobs you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And we can position you in a way to say, I know there's some hesitation and concern, but here's why I think my category is safe. So um, I'm definitely happy to speak to you offline and give you some pointers because it's really important. Employers are scared right now. They don't know what to do. So it's easy for them to just say, I don't wanna do anything. Like, I just don't know what's going on. Um, but, but let's give you some positioning tactics so that you can say, well, hey, I'm on this and you have no reason to worry. And, you know, let's, let's come up with a strategy. Excuse me. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, well, thank you, Rosanna. Appreciate it. I know it's a little past nine and we had no until problem. nine. So okay. um, you're obviously more than welcome to stay. We're going to turn it over to uh, Julie and Ryan at the CFIB, Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Uh, which full disclosure F2 is a member of recently, but uh, we're already seeing some good things. So, um, Julie, if uh, I'll hand over to you and you can, you know, can work with Ryan on that. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks, Rosanna. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having uh, uh, us join you this morning. Uh, my name is Julie Bryden. I'm the general manager for Eastern Ontario. Uh, and Ryan uh, Malo is with me this morning. And Ryan is our director of provincial affairs. So I know we're a little limited on time this morning. So I'll just do a very brief high level overview of CFIB. Uh, and then I'll pass it over to Ryan. And he'll get into a little bit more in depth in terms of the uh, COVID uh situation what's happening there and the uh, major programs that are available for business owners in canada um so who, for those of you who don't know us um cfib we're the canadian federation of independent business we are the largest um group representing independent business owners in canada um so we're the political voice for independent business and we were founded in 1971 uh, so we've been around for almost 50 years and we have 110,000 members uh, across the country in all different sectors. Um, some of our major victories that we've um, consistently worked on over the years, the small business corporate tax rate, the lifetime capital gains exemption, uh, payroll taxes, everything from CPP, EI, WSIB, uh, EHT, as well as the debit credit code of conduct. Uh, just to name a few. Um, so we have three main pillars uh, of the organization. Uh, first off, we have our uh, business resources department. Uh, so this department helps business owners and it provides expert advice and resources. So our business counselors are here to support you any way that they can. Um, we keep you informed as well with uh, monthly newsletters and webinars are very popular, especially right now uh, with the COVID situation. Um, we can essentially be your HR specialist for small firms. So 
if a business is having a challenge with um, EI rulings or a matter regarding business compliance, um, you can uh, call that department uh, and they'll help you any way that they can. Uh, we also have easy to use templates and documents that every business in Canada should have. Many business owners just don't have access to these uh, smaller firms and they don't have the time to create themselves. Um, so this is one of uh, um, a big resource that we offer for our members as well. We also do a savings program. So as we know uh, in business, typically the lowest rates and best discounts are given to companies with the highest volume. What we've done is we've used our strength of uh, 110,000 members to negotiate uh, discounts with selected providers that you can trust. So just to give you a few examples, we have a program, uh, banking program, merchant services, payroll, health and dental, uh, that our members would have access to uh, should they choose to want to take advantage of those. And then our uh, third and final pillar is, of course, our advocacy. So uh, considering the taxes that small business owners pay, uh, the number of jobs that they create, uh, most business owners agree that we should have a stronger voice uh, in the laws and regulations that affect uh, the um, small and medium-sized business community. And many business owners just don't have the time uh, to tackle it themselves. So um, where we may be voting, uh, you know, with government every four years, uh, with CFIB, as a business owner, you have a say every time a policy impacts your business. Through meetings and surveys, business owners tell us what's affecting their business. We take it from there and ensure uh, your views get in front of politicians and decision makers. So we set up that direct line of communication. So everyone in a position to either make or influence policy um, knows how you feel. So that's kind of the uh, broad and uh, very brief overview. I know that was fairly quick, um, but uh, to wrap things up in terms of the uh, three pillars, we provide that expert advice savings and of course pushing for policies that support uh, business in Canada. So as we know over the past uh, seven, eight weeks, um, we've been uh, hit of course with uh, COVID-19 and I'm going to turn things over to Ryan uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what we're hearing, what we're seeing, uh, as well as uh, the four major programs. Uh, Barry, and you might want to correct me here, I, I think in the email that was sent yesterday, are you looking to predominantly focus in on the wage subsidy? Is that the main program that you'd like to, to review today? I know it's a hot subject for everybody and, and John's looking at himself on behalf of uh, TechConnects. Um, I'll throw it out to the, to the group, but that's, one of, that's definitely one of the areas as well as the, what you're hearing as far as business loans go for companies. Um, sure. Also, like myself, I'll give you a personal case with F2. We pay ourselves in dividends. It's not recognized as towards payroll. So are they starting to take a look at compensation outside of the traditional payroll systems and payroll accounting? Those type of situations, you know, those type of questions. Absolutely. And Ryan, I'll pass this over to Ryan and he'll be able to review all of that. Okay. Certainly. So uh, thank you everyone for having me. As Julie said, I'm Ryan Malo. I'm the Director of, Provincial, uh, Director of Provincial Affairs here with the CFIB. 
um, but I am fairly into the uh, fairly plugged into the federal stuff right now too, as uh, my colleagues across the country are uh, with things moving uh, incredibly quickly and the money seeming to all flow from the top. Um, so I'll talk about uh, some of the major programs I can focus in on uh, the wage subsidy and what's going on there, uh, as well as what we're hearing uh, both from Ottawa as well as what we're hearing in Toronto and from the provinces across the country. Uh, as I'm sure a lot of you know, reopening is the hot topic right now. Uh, nine of 10 provinces now have formal plans for reopening. Uh, the exception is Nova Scotia, and we do expect that they'll be out later today with theirs. So we are starting to see uh, some relaxing, I guess, of restrictions. And I would say that we're not quite out of the woods, but heading into the next step of this uh, COVID world that, that we're living in and sort of the, the operating procedures that we're gonna be under for the next little while. Uh, so at the federal level, I think there are really uh, four main programs that uh, we have been fighting for and then after announced fighting with uh, from the federal government. The big splashy one is obviously the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, CEWS or CHOOSE, uh, as it's affectionately been called. Um, this, this was an important one for us and we were on this one fairly early. Uh, it's an idea that came out of Denmark originally. They were the first government to start subsidizing uh, employee wages. Denmark also subsidizes employer wages. Uh, and we saw very quickly Germany, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Australia, and New Zealand start to follow suit. Um, so the program was originally introduced in Canada as a 10% wage subsidy. And I want to make sure I distinguish that 10% program is still available um, and is much easier to access. It's much less restrictive. Um, however, it's also capped. So to qualify for that original 10%, and these rules still apply, you have to be Canadian controlled, you have to be eligible for the small business deduction, uh, and you have to have an existing business number and payroll program account with the CRA as of March 18th. If you have those things, you can get up to $1,375 per employee to a maximum of $25,000. Uh, and there's no application process for that. You do it by reducing the amount of tax you remit on payroll. So basically you deduct 10% from uh, federal, provincial or territorial income tax uh, and keep it. Uh, and that's, that's just how that works, uh, that plain and simple. For the 75%. Okay, so I'm, I'm slow, go over that again. So, so for the 10% program, which is, which is in effect and it is, if you are Canadian, a Canadian controlled private company or a non-for-profit or a registered charity, uh, you have an existing business number and payroll program account with the CRA uh, as of March 18th, and you are eligible for the small business deduction. If you hit those three criteria, you're eligible for the 10% and you get the 10% by reducing the amount of income tax that you remit by 10%. So for example, if you paid an employee, uh, $3,000 on the paycheck, the income tax on that would normally be about 700. So you would only pay 400. You keep 10% of the 3,000, which is $300. And that's, that's so not, how that works. Not 10% of the tax payable, 10%. No, it's 10% of the salary up to a cap of 1375 per employee okay. and 25,000 per business. Okay. So that was the, the original program we had. Um, Wonderful step in the right direction. They announced it pretty early, easy to use, hits a lot of our checkboxes, but 10% was not gonna be anywhere near enough to realistically uh, stop uh, layoffs. And that was, that was our main concern, was severing the connection between employer and the uh, employee. 
Um, I, I got mean, a question coming would, in for the yeah, for the ten percent ask. Sorry. I was just going to say, the only thing I would add is, um, depending on your payroll provider, if you're not doing it yourself, it can be a little bit administrative. Like ours took forever to figure it out. Eventually they did. We don't actually reduce how much we remit, but they reimburse us for it at the end of the day. Yes, that's, that's, the, other, that's the other option. And that's when you can uh, work to with the CRA to see if you want to take the 10% and get it back. And uh, the other question that came in is that 1375 comes from tax only and does not include EI or CPP. That's correct. You are still required to pay the regular uh, payroll taxes or fees that you have to pay EI, CPP, WSIB. Um, that plays into the 75% program. So again, the 10% program was nice, but it wasn't going to be nearly enough. Uh, so we and several other business groups pushed hard to get that number increased and they came out with the choose program. So the choose program has a slightly different eligibility criteria. Uh, it's available to businesses, partnerships, not-for-profits and registered charities. To qualify for the program, you have to show a 15% gross revenue reduction for the month of March and then a 30% gross revenue reduction for April and May to get those months. If you show 15 and then 17, you'll still be eligible for March but you might not be eligible for May uh, and June. Um, this money is also strictly for employees. It's, it's a question that we get in a lot. This CHOOSE program is not a loan. It's a payroll subsidy. It is supposed to be used for payroll. The expectation is not that you collect that money in and then pay other bills with it. That money is for you, your employees uh, up to 75% of their uh, pre-crisis salary which I'm hoping I didn't freeze here. Can everyone still hear me? Just someone give me a quick nod. Yeah, Excellent. we can hear you. you. You froze, but we can still hear you. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going then and hopefully we'll unfreeze shortly. Um, so the, the money is for employees and the, the first question we get is how do you determine an employee? Simple answer, they get a T4 and their income's reflected on the T4 sum. So this is where uh, some employers may be eligible depending on how you pay yourself in your corporate structure. If you pay yourself like an employee and you get a T4, odds are you are eligible for the subsidy. If you take uh, dividends or pay yourself in another way, odds are you are not eligible in the subsidy. And I will say we are pushing to expand that criteria, but that is where the wage subsidy is living right now. Uh, the Ryan, wage subsidy, Ryan, go ahead, does that, go, does that reimburse to the company or does that go directly to the employee? Do you need to provide employee details? So the wage subsidy goes directly to the company. You apply for it, the portal is open. You apply for it through uh, CRA. Uh, and uh, we need to check in with members, but money was supposed to have started flowing as of yesterday. So the portal, the application process opened up April 27th. The first uh, sums should be heading as direct payments into business accounts uh, for uh, yesterday, uh, May 7th. Uh, the maximum, the maximum subsidy you can get is $847 a week, uh, or, uh, or up to 75% of pre-crisis pre salary at a maximum of $847 a week. The government is also strongly recommending that if you are able, you top up the remaining 25%. It is not a requirement. No one is going to come after you if you don't. Uh, many businesses are unable to, and the government understands that. They're recommending you do it, but it is not mandatory. I've got a question from Vanny. Uh, hi, yeah, I had a question about how the 75% wage subsidy works with the 10%. Yes. Um, so if you get the 75%, can you use the 10% for the remaining 25% or does it reduce 
how much you can get on the 75% wage subsidy? So on the, uh, on the wage subsidy side, you can access both the 10% and the 75% at the same time. That is an option. And given uh, it takes a little while with the application process on the 75%, we are recommending that uh, employers take advantage of the 10% now if they're eligible as they apply for the 75. The government is ensuring, however, that there is no double dipping going on. So effectively what happens is your 75% becomes a 65% with okay. that 10% that you had. So you, it still works out for you as 75% total, but they're making sure that it's not 85. So, so what happens if um, uh, you didn't take the 10%, but you take the 75% now? The, yeah. I mean, I read somewhere you get the 10% later. So is that on your tax return or do you have to do something special to get that later? So if you, if you take the 75 now and then go after the 10%, it mm -hmm. may take some time for the CRA to reduce your 75 to a 65. Right. So, I, so I'd say what will happen is, yeah, on your tax return, they're going to come for it. They'll claw okay. the money back. Okay, got it. Um, and I will note that for, for all programs, the federal government's priority has been get money out first, deal with uh, consequences or potential fraud or anything else that might arise later, but they are going to deal with it um, I'd expect if anyone's looking for a job, CRA auditor as of next tax season is going to be very much employing. Um, so just be be wary of that. That is something that is going to be coming. And David had a question regarding uh, regarding receiving monies. David, you want to? Yeah. Hi. Hi, Ryan. Um, so our, our key concern is um, we've been speaking to the banks regarding the EDC 80% um, guarantee. Yeah. They'll guarantee eighty percent of the loan, and and there's, there's also BDC co-lending. So both those programs are available. We've spoken to our, our bank, and and we've gotten zero feedback at all. About a week ago, I, I saw I read something online where a Scotiabank customer went to his banker and asked for the same things, and they said, "Oh no, no, we're only offering this to commercial customers, not to small business customers, and so forth." I wanted to know if you've heard anything about this. I also reached out to BDC directly, and their question was, "Has your financial situation changed?" I said, well, yes, it's gotten worse due to COVID. Uh, so it, it, is, it seems they're just using the regular um, criteria and, and, and you know, where the idea is the government is helping businesses and so forth. And, and we've been hit by this, but I'm, clearly we're not hit as bad as restaurants and so forth and whatever. And, uh, but, but still, um, I'm just surprised at the government announcing these two programs, and yet there's nothing there. Uh, as, yeah. As, yeah, so the, the, the BDC and the EDC have been a, a pretty consistent pain point. Um, they were, they were the, the, in the first slate of government announcements, they were sort of the, you know, the BDC is providing additional funding and loans and you can go get them. And the sort of immediate feedback we got was, no, not really. Um, not only have they been difficult to navigate and uh, we, we have heard the same sort of unresponsive uh, side on the feedback, but they're also very restrictive. Um, for example, if your business is less than two years, I wouldn't bother. Um, they, they don't look at younger businesses. There are certain sectors they flat out won't touch, um, including restaurants, including uh, cannabis, which has been a, its own fun bag of fun. <laughs> um, um, but they, the, the programs are there um, and they are, they are larger programs. The main loan program that we've been hearing from our members as far as uh, the one that they want to apply for and also the one that has had some uh, uh, 
eligibility criteria concerns around is the CEBA, the Canada Emergency Business Account. That's the $40,000 loan. Um, that one is backed by the government, but done through your bank or financial institution. All credit unions should be up and running, uh, having that as well right now if you bank through them. Um, and their their criteria yeah, are... Yes, sorry, that, that one that, that yeah. one's not a big deal. I'm sure most people are getting that. That's not a problem. But the, the concern is, is the question is about these larger loans that one theoretically theoretically can get from EDC and BDC and, yeah. and, and, and EDC in particular, if they're saying we're going to guarantee 80%, I mean, we worked with EDC a couple of years ago and even our bank manager said, why are you wasting your time? She's been through this before. And at the end of the process, EDC said, well, if your bank approves the loan, then um, um, we can work together. But I said, if the bank approves the loan, what do I need you for? Yeah. And so forth. Yeah. It, it was totally an absolute waste of time. And I sort of blew up the, at the EDC director in our area here and so forth. But the point is, is if, if the government is now saying EDC will guarantee 80%, which they wouldn't two, three years ago when we spoke to them about expansion globally. And now um, um, they're even offering this to businesses, even in Canada, even if you're not uh, exporting, which we are. Um, where, where is this? Uh, you know, there, there's nothing. You're in zero. Uh, I'm actually kind of uh, absolutely um, disappointed with that, basically. Yeah, and it's it's also a. I will. Again, we're we're we are in contact with the BDC trying to get things rolled out. I will also note that, uh, in particular, the federal government, but also a lot of provincial governments, have had a habit of announcing things will be available, and then you kind of hear radio silence for three, four, five weeks, and then you start to see something. So I, I would also say don't give up on it just yet. Um, the announcements are coming a lot faster than actual programming. Um, for what it's worth, the 75% choose, I think, was announced at the beginning of April. And yesterday was when money started flowing. Two weeks ago or a week and a half ago is when the application process was actually made available. So I wouldn't say it's, it's quite dead yet. Keep at it. I know it's frustrating. I know in particular the, BD, the BDC and the EDC are not great with uh, – red tape and processes, let alone communication. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's, it's necessarily dead just yet. Uh, Thank you. John, John, in the chat group, a choose question. Yes, just regarding uh, the application, uh, I've gone through the process in detail and I will state that it's, uh, it's quite a simple process. And if you're going to take advantage of it, certainly encourage you to uh, go through whether you're going through the CRA, my account or the, or the other portal. But the form itself uh, does have a section on it where it asks you the amount of 10% that you claim, and that's automatically subtracted. But my question uh, is related to the submission. I know that 15% in March and then 30% in terms of April and May reduction in revenues. It does state that if you are uh, approved for uh, the first tranche, which is the 15% of March, you're automatically approved for the second one in April. Uh, and then you have to reapply in May. But my question is, uh, you have to have still 30% reduction in revenue in April. Uh, I talked to the people at CRA because they phoned me to clarify a couple of items on my submission and then indicated that we were approved and would receive a, a, a check within the next or automatic deposit within the next five days. But do I have to reapply for that second tranche or is it just automatic? CRA, CRA stated I did have to apply. Uh, it was a lady that was her first day on the job. 
I was on a, uh, a presentation from Deloitte and they stated that you didn't have to apply. So there's some confusion. So it's, it's my understanding that you don't have to, if you got approved for the first tranche, you're okay for the second, but we'll have to reapply for the third. That is my, my understanding of it. I will, I will note, uh, we do a report card of the CRA sort of every other year as an organization. They never score like higher than a C or a C plus, especially when it comes to advice giving and customer service. I will recommend it will take you a little bit longer, but it is on the CRA that anything they put in writing, they have to honor even if they screw up. And the best example of that is a couple years ago, they said taxes were due May 7th. They weren't, they were due April 30th. So the government was obliged to give everyone an extra week to file. So if you're, if you're looking for a concrete answer from them, email them and have them get back to you in writing. Yeah, because I, at, I, at the very least, as long as you follow it, you're good. Yeah, John, fair, for what it's in, worth. It, I, sorry, I, in, in fairness, uh, I mean, the, the lady that was on, I mean, she was outstanding, just did an amazing job. She was very patient uh, and she did stay. She's been with the CRA for 20 years, but she said, this is my first job on the CEWS. So she said, it's my understanding. So it wasn't in writing. Uh, yeah. So that's why I just wondered about the confusion. Sorry, Patrick. Hey, John, I was just I was just on their website, actually just trying to find out the status of my own claims. Um, and the window opens up for the next window is as of yet as of tomorrow. My thought on this one is like I think what Ryan's saying is absolutely right. But relatively speaking, you, you what you just pointed out, it's a fairly easy process to apply. It's probably just going to be faster to apply again them risk waiting and find out if, if you needed to reapply. <laughs> oh, good point. Yeah. And I will note too that, that the choose application process is like retroactive. So I believe you can apply as late as October, 2020. Um, if you're looking to, to go back and get as well. And hey, Ryan, just what a about, question uh, on what something about, you raised. Oh, go, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Patrick. Sorry, you okay. finish. Just a quick one. Uh, Ryan, you raised a question that some people are uh, being having calls or maybe John, you had a call. I have heard that some people are getting calls just to kind of verify that that you applied. You know, I'm kind of sitting here going, we haven't got a call. And now I'm like, does that mean it's like, do you know, is everybody getting a call to verify it before it's processed or only some? So I, in our case, uh, it was really more a clarification uh, about address because in our CRA account, uh, we have a mailing address that was different than our uh, physical location address. So I had to go in to the, uh, to the, port, the, the CRA, my account, and update a lot of information that hadn't been updated. And they also wanted to clarify uh, regarding the bank in terms of I asked for direct deposit. So she was just doing a clarification on the bank. That was the reason for her call. Yeah, uh, okay. Other than the, the, uh, just in case others are wondering, like they are calling the business owner Right. So even though I was the person that did the application, right, um, they're, they're calling and will only speak to the business owner. Right. Which kind of caused me to give them a heads up because, to be honest, they're not going to be able to answer the question. Right. So I had to kind of prep them <laughs> right with the stuff. So, Ryan, I've got two. Uh, I've got two friends of mine. Well, actually, they're more business associates, but they're in the exact same business. So they use subs a lot, subcontractors a lot for their work. One applied as because as we, as everybody knows, you're, you're a subcontractor of majority of their businesses through your company. You have to treat them with CP, from the CPP and EI perspective, contributions as full-time employees, so on and so forth. So one got, one got approved, the other one didn't. 
are you hearing anything? Maybe Howard or Patrick, if you've heard the same thing, are subs being viewed as full-time employees if that company is paying CPP and EI, or are they still treated as a third party? So this is, so my, my understanding is if, if you have a contractor, the contractor is not being treated as an employee. That being said, traditionally contractors don't get CPP and EI. That's one of the things that separates them out. So I would, I would, I'm not 100% sure, and I would say it's something you'd want to verify with the CRA, but I'm guessing that that's the threshold test. Um, yeah. And if, if you are paying the uh, traditional payroll taxes that you would be paid as, as an employee, then the CRA is looking at it as an employee. Yeah. I would also note, um, helping absolutely no one, the definition of an employee between the CRA and uh, provincial employment standards is different. They do not have the same thresholds and requirements, so it's it's... Also to complicate things, if you're if you're curious about which of your staff uh, are eligible, you're going to be wanting to use the CRA's definition. Yeah, Barry, we we didn't apply. Like we took our, uh, even though in reality our contractors really are employees. Yeah, exactly. On this call, right? Uh, but we took them out of the equation, right? Um, it, it's one more reason, to be honest. I've been pushing to make them employees, but they're resisting, right? Um, yeah. You know. And, yeah, they, I, I can confirm they're not eligible. Uh, you wouldn't be able to use your subcontractors. And uh, I think CRA is even pushing even harder for subcontractors who are really treated as, uh, as quasi-employees that they have to be employees. I mean, you know, that's been something that's gone on for a long time, but now they're pushing even harder for that. And uh, also uh, under the employment standards as well. Uh, that's also being being you know very they're very vigilant on that now. Yeah, because one of my friends, he's you know he has thirty five subcontractors, and one of the incentives he uses to keep them with him is he does pay their CPP and EI for them, but they are still subcontractors. Right. And he's the one that didn't get. Yeah, they wouldn't for, be eligible for EI because if you're subcontractors and okay. yeah. So they would just, right, probably CPP. I like always combine on their self-employed earnings. But the whole thing's, you know, as soon as CRA come in, if they did a payroll audit, they look at that 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 business, you know, and they can go back four years and they can charge the employer with all the employer's share of CPP and EI for every person going back four years with penalty of twenty percent uh, yeah. on each pay period missed and interest. Believe you me, I've seen it run up hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah. but they don't qualify as employees. <laughs> well, uh, CRA might take a different uh, approach. I mean- no, I'm talking about for this program. What, they don't want, look at what you, you might have think that they are. They look at what they think they are. <laughs> yeah, okay. Sorry, Ryan. No problem. I've seen a couple of questions come up in the chat, so I want to address. Um, is there something that uh, you guys as an association can do with CFIB to encourage the BDC and EDC to pick this up? Um, yep, I would be happy to put you in touch with our uh, our federal, uh, it's our, our vice president of national affairs who's got the direct line into the BDC and EDC. Um, if you want to follow up uh, either with Julie or myself with an email uh, laying out your issues, uh, we can take that straight to them, no problem, or work on a letter or something to that effect. Um, on the uh, 
someone asked if there's any plans to extend the choose program past June. Um, that is something that we are working on. We are trying to make governments at all levels very aware of the fact that as appreciative as businesses are of having these programs to help get them through the no business period that getting back up to business pre COVID business levels is going to take uh, for some businesses a significant amount of time, uh, especially as consumers get more comfortable with going back outside and spending their money and you know we're all able to to get back out to work. So we are looking for program extensions on all of the programs, um, with the exception maybe of the rental one because it's kind of awful right now and we just sort of want to see that overhauled entirely. Um, but we are pushing to extend Choose Past June. Um, we are pushing to see the, uh, the 40,000 loan program uh, expanded so that more of it is forgivable. Um, and we are uh, keeping a very close eye on CERB as well for eligibility as well as the impact that people going back to work uh, will have on those payments. Uh, and I see John had a question on the CEBA. Yes, I, I brought this up on previous uh, peer groups regarding the uh, CEBA. And then I went through to try to apply for that. But uh, when you do apply, uh, as I've mentioned before, the person that's applying is actually defined as an owner as well as whoever owns the company. And it stipulates very clearly that whoever an owner is, whether including the person who has actually applied, is personally liable for all debt associated with SIBA. Um, and it also stipulates that the bank can go into your account at any time and take money out for that, uh, that responsibility. Has that been raised at all as a concern, or is it just that's just the way it is, and let's move on? We haven't heard it raised as a, as a concern as of yet. Um, ask me again when we get closer to the the payment deadline on that, uh, which is December 31, I believe, 2022. Um, the, the biggest issue that we've heard around, and I saw Howard uh, has it in the chat as well, the biggest issue that we've heard around that program is uh, the ineligibility for uh, businesses, uh, sole proprietors, businesses with uh, uh, non-business accounts, uh, and ones that employ contractors but not employees not meeting the payroll eligibility criteria. That's the biggest frustration. Like we were, we were pleased when the government expanded the payroll eligibility from 50 to a million to 20 to 1.5. Um, but there's still a lot of businesses on both ends of that uh, uh, spectrum that are just ineligible that are quite frustrated. Um, but the big one is uh, sole proprietors or non-incorporated businesses just have no access to this program. It's a non-starter for them. Um, and that's been a, a major frustration and one that we're trying to see change as well. We'd like to see basically, you have a business, you should be eligible for that program. That's, we'd like it to be that, that simple and straightforward. We, we have a lot of situations where we have clients that have a relatively small business, two owners running the business, husband and wife often, uh, they pay themselves either by dividends or by salary. You have two exactly the same companies, the ones that are paid by salary get to uh, get this $40,000 loan and get the choose and the ones that receive their remuneration by dividend and at least only one year, they might, as long as they, 2019, they don't have payroll, they received it by, uh, by, by dividend, they're excluded from both of these. And that, and that has caused more issues, I think, in with our type of clients, which is on entrepreneur, smaller entrepreneurial type, type clients than anything else. Uh, it's yeah. so in, in, inequitable. Yeah, it's it's grossly unfair. We've we've been raising it pretty consistently. I think we were 
we were out with a press relief uh, on Tuesday of this week calling for that exact change. We want to see dividends recognized, um, especially because it's not it's not just a way that a lot of business owners pay themselves. It's a lot of ways. It's a way that a lot of their accountants have told them to pay themselves. Like they they did this on on best advice, um, and it's unfair that they get dinged for following it. And also some of those businesses do it that way because their cash flow is very lumpy and they, they don't have the funds to make payroll deductions every month and send them into CRA by the 15th. So they yeah. do it by dividends as an easier way to, because of their lumpy cash flow. Yeah. yeah. Well, also as a business owner, sometimes the money's just not there. Yeah. Yes. And you, and you gotta, you gotta fund the business for three or four months out of your own pocket. Yeah. And when the project comes in, so, um, so go ahead, sir. On, on that front, I'll also just talk a little bit about uh, the, the weeks and months ahead and sort of where the political climate is here right now and the appetite for reopening and that sort of thing. So on the federal side, our focus is very much on getting existing programs uh, extended, whether it's timeline or eligibility criteria. Um, as well as plugging any any gaps that we can find. Uh, on the provincial side, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the provinces are, are getting quite focused on reopening. I would say that the, the influx of news over the past couple of weeks on reopening plans and the number of dates that have been thrown around is a little bit misleading. Um, there, especially in Ontario, the government wants to be incredibly careful about reopening. Politically, this government in particular does not want to wear a second spike. They don't want to be responsible for that. Um, and uh, they're being so careful to the point where in Northern Ontario, there are almost no cases left. Uh, and yesterday the government confirmed they will not open the province regionally. The province will all be open simultaneously, which means we are all beholden to the city of Toronto. Until Toronto clears up, realistically, you're not gonna see things open on any, on any sort of grand scale. Um, that being said, uh, the province has been very good about laying out what it wants businesses to do. And I want to be careful about the language there because there's a difference between what they want and what is required. Right now, technically, there are no requirements, COVID-related requirements for businesses from a workplace health and safety or employment standards uh, view that weren't already there. What the government has done is for 60, 65 different sectors, put out uh, three pagers uh, health and safety documents about what it is recommending businesses do. While these are recommendations, they've also added 58 enforcement officers to the legion that they already have to go out and make sure that businesses are compliant. So we are still trying to figure out what the gap is between the 15 bullet points they are recommending, which can be as simple as make sure employees are washing hands uh, after interacting with customers, or if you are having clients into your office, do a phone call first and pre-screen them to make sure that they are not symptomatic, to putting up plexiglass barriers and having hand sanitizer on site, which of course comes with a cost and procurement uh, angle. It's unclear to us how many of these that you need to hit to be compliant. What we do know is that you do need to be at least following some of it. So I will note that these are, some of these are, are you know, uh, construction oriented sharing tools or lawn and garden centers have their own. Office spaces also have their own list. I highly recommend that everyone get well acquainted with it um, because the government is going to be out looking for non-compliance, both as a health and safety measure, but also to be blunt, government revenues are gonna take a monster hit. 
Federally, we're going to have a massive deficit. Provincially, we're going to have a big one too, even though the government has spent provincially very little. Um, there's a lot of businesses and a lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of businesses have gone down. Their revenue is going to be low this year. Labor inspectors can make up some of it by issuing tickets. You're looking at $750,000 a ticket for non-compliance with the health and safety orders. You could be looking up to 500,000 to a million if you uh, go uh, against the uh, general emergency order, which would at this point basically look like opening up early when you weren't supposed to. So again, pay very close attention to the government's uh, uh, announcements on what can and can't be open. Um, I will also note that uh, all of this information, including a link directly to those uh, health and safety guides is available on our website. Um, head to cfib.ca. There's a big COVID page there, the link to provincial pages, and we have the, the link there on the Ontario page as well. If I can- um, It's a bit of a rat hole discussion. Oh, sorry, Julie. No, that, that's okay, sorry. Um, if I can just chime in here as well. We have also, uh, we're just in the um, midst of finalizing. We've created a back to business guide uh, for our members uh, across the country. It's uh, laid out by province. Um, as Ryan mentioned, it differs uh, provincially. Uh, there are some recommendations versus actually mandated. Uh, so here in Ontario as well, that is something that we provide. Uh, the back to business guide includes things like best practices, uh, posters and templates that businesses should have up. Uh, as well as frequently asked questions. So one of the things that I wanted to bring up that we are hearing quite regularly is uh, as businesses get prepared to return to work, some employees aren't wanting to come back to work. So in terms of those types of questions, the frequently asked questions as we start to roll back into things, we also have a ton of information uh, that's available for you as well. Just to side note. Yeah, one other thing, like I mentioned, this is probably a rat hole discussion, but I got a table it because hopefully if you're having discussions, it's as a business owner, I bring my people back. I'm trying my best to be in 100% compliance, but some employee doesn't agree, whistleblower, I get brought in, you know, am I liable? How, how is the governance, how is the accountability going to be? What's the process to to protect myself as a business owner against somebody, even though I'm doing 100% of what I can do, because some of the onus does fall on the employees to be in compliance as well. And where does that, that's a slippery slope. So yeah, so, great so to hear going forward, how they're gonna administer that. So in Ontario, you as an employer have the responsibility to ensure a safe and healthy workplace. Your employee has that same responsibility. They are also responsible, like an employee who, develops a fever and a cough and comes into work anyway because they feel like they can, um, is, is not adhering to that responsibility and you can uh, uh, react to that accordingly. When it comes to enforcement, there's, there's two sides to this. One, Julie mentioned the back to business kit. One of the things we have in there is a, a for lack of a better term, a, a set of template documents that sort of lay out your health and safety, uh, your COVID related health and safety guidelines for the workplace. It sort of says, this is, this is what we are doing. This is what we are encouraging. We would highly recommend sharing that with employees, actually including employees in that process so that you're communicating what their responsibilities are as well, um, including but not limited to, you know, if, if they notice that an employee is suddenly developing a cold sweat and coughing a lot, 
someone, you know, tell a manager, make sure someone gets sent home, uh, have them be on the lookout too. When it comes to the enforcement side of it, uh, the government has promised an education You've got, let's say, a hand washing sign up, you've got a, an employee sick policy in place, but maybe you don't have hand sanitizer at your front desk and they think you need it. So they'll say, you know, get some hand sanitizer in, I'll be back in a week to double check sort of thing. Um, that's the approach they're supposed to be taking. Uh, we're <clears throat> listening very closely on the ground to see if that's the approach they're actually taking. Um, it honestly is gonna depend on the inspector you get and what day of the week it is. Uh, some of them are a little bit uh, uh, gun shy and other ones are willing to shoot from the hip pretty quickly. I will also note that uh, uh, it's incredibly important to be compliant with all of the other things you already had to be compliant with. Even during COVID, we have heard labor inspectors doing routine inspections. So things like having a workplace violence and harassment policy, having uh, you know, the appropriate uh, posters in your break room, um, all of that stuff still matters. And I think that as business owners get back to business, it's obviously not front of mind, um, but it is gonna be something that's looked for and inspectors don't come in looking for any one thing, they come in looking for what they can find. Um, so they may come in with COVID on the mind, but then notice that you don't have your workplace health and safety green book in the break room. And they're gonna say, well, that's a fine. Um, so again, so we, we do have a compliance checklist. It is part of that back to business kit, but we've, we've always had it. But that's also going to be something that we're going to be making sure that uh, members are aware of that we're walking business owners through to make sure that they're compliant with everything they need to be compliant with. John has a question there about the CIB uh, back to work book. Yeah, my, my question really is, it sounds like a great book. Is that something that our Tech Connect members could have access to or do you have to be a CFIB member? Um, John, I, I can do some uh, digging for you and see what I can, can find. It is, this is, I mean, as a nonprofit uh, organization, we are strictly funded by our members. Uh, usually our uh, compliance checklist and back to business guide is uh, reserved for, for our members. Um, but I'll see what I can do and, and uh, connect with Barry. And if I can share that, I will. Thank you very much. The other thing I wanted to mention is Sandy, who is my regional manager, who I've talked to many, many times, also put me in touch with CFIB. And I don't want to put CFIB out there on, on, the, uh, on the hook, but they're also entertaining calls at their number from non-members during this time. Um, so they have opened up the, their, uh, their resources to non-CFIB members, because um, I've talked to them a number of times before I became a member, and only because of those calls and Sandy's efforts, I decided to join uh, CFIB ourselves, so. Uh, yeah, I, I will say, hey, that, that hotline, so on a, on a normal non-COVID day, like 80 calls a day across the country is pretty standard. Uh, right now, we're between 800 and 1,000. Uh, in the last seven weeks, we've received about 20,000 calls. About a third of those are, have been from non-members. Um, so if you've got questions on anything from, uh, you know, my employees aren't coming back, what do I do? Or they're refusing to come back, what do I need to do? To uh, uh, <clears throat> figuring out if you're eligible for certain programs or you're having uh, difficulty uh, figuring out the criteria, setting up your my CRA account, you're getting bad answers from the CRA, give us a call. Um, and we will do somebody, if someone doesn't pick up, leave a message, somebody will get back to you um, quickly. Uh, and 
we'll do everything we can to to get an answer to your question and help uh, either walk you through a process or if it's something that you want to see raised with government, they'll get to someone like me and we'll we'll do that on your behalf. It's also important for the CFIB to hear from us because it gives them a voice as well. So. Any uh, anything else, folks? I know you got a hard out, uh, Ryan. You got another call to get on. So, um, any questions or anything, Julie or Ryan, you wanna you wanna cover? And I think our Ryan wants to probably close off on a couple of points. So I'll just throw it back to everybody. Certainly, yeah. I'll, I'll just note the uh, uh, question that just came in. I'd pick oh. us. Um, <laughs> depending on which, which association you want to join. Uh, it, it depends on, on what's right for your business. I mean, uh, Julie uh, laid out what we do pretty well. Again, I, I uh, work very closely with the people on the front lines of that hotline. For me, um, that's, that is a sort of brilliant service to have and it's pretty unique. It's not something that a Chamber of Commerce offers. Um, I will also note that the other, especially right now, um, we survey very regularly and right now CFIB is surveying once a week our membership. We put the survey out on Friday, questions on how are the programs working, what is working for you, what isn't, what uh, roadblocks are you running into, what are you worried about moving forward, what would you like to see, all those sort of things. We put that survey out on Friday, Monday afternoon we're briefing government officials on a live phone call with the results. In those 48 hours we get about 13,000 responses. For comparison's sake, StatsCan and the Canadian Chamber of Commerce did a joint survey together. They got 10,000 responses over a month. So when it comes to data and moving quickly on government and getting, getting movement, we are as close to in real time, I think, as you can be um, on the survey side. So we, especially right now, um, we very much have the ear. And again, uh, if there's anything that you want to see communicated, we, we'd love to hear it because we are we're trying to do as much as we can to help as many businesses as we can. We want to see everybody get out of this in a, in a position where they can, you know, recover quickly um, and get back to full strength. So anything that uh, we can do, we're here to help. Membership fees are in line with ours folks, just to give you an idea. They're actually a little less than ours. Okay. Uh, da, da, da. Yeah. Any other questions or, No? Well, Julie and Ryan, thank you very much. You're welcome to join us. We're just going to close off on a couple of points. Uh, our Ryan's going to take over and close off on a couple of things, but um, you're welcome to stay on, or if not, uh, truly appreciated. Thank you very much. Obviously, very difficult times for a lot of people. A lot of tough things going on, so uh, let's let's please stay in touch. Obviously, I will, but let's stay in touch as, yeah. as organizations. As Thanks for the information. It's great. And uh, Barry, I will, you've got my contact information. As, as Ryan mentioned, our, our most important concern is that any business owner gets the support and help that they need. So uh, if there's anything that you'd like to reach out to us after, uh, please don't hesitate to share our contact information. Uh, we're happy to speak with anyone. And if yeah. you're, um, you know, I'm going to put a plug in here for TechConnects. We, you know, very similar to CFIB, we've been around for decades. Uh, previously called the York Tech Association and we are we're focused on tech companies and heavy tech users like the RBC's you know and Bank of Montreal and their members of TechConnect as well as startups to Esri which is a multi-hundred million dollar company in Toronto uh, but we're primarily in the Toronto area but we are a peer group and we have many many types of peer groups like this for sales marketing accounting operations CEO obviously COO 
So we're always looking to grow the membership. So if you have members that want to get involved in a peer group, you know, environment where one CEO can talk to another CEO or a salesperson can talk to another salesperson or marketing and marketing, that's what Tech Connects is. And our strength is our membership, very similar to yourself, but it's really the knowledge we share. Like with David, you know, David's done stuff internationally and shares a lot of the time with our members that are looking at going international. So please keep that in mind and please refer people if you come across somebody that's interested in this type of a, this type of a scenario. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much for having us this morning. Thanks very much. Thanks for appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Ellis, you want to take over? Yeah, so obviously thank you uh, to Rosanna Berardi of uh, Berardi Immigration uh, Lawyers in Buffalo. And obviously thank you to Julie and Ryan of CFIB. And I know CFIB from my past when I worked with uh, CACDS, the Canadian Association of Chain Drug Stores. Um, and we were on the other side advocating for um, pharmacies and all that stuff so I know all the great work they do and I remember doing the hotline as well back in the day and boy it was busy so um, awesome work you guys are doing. Obviously thank you everybody for attending uh, the session today and uh, we have two peer groups next week. Uh, on Tuesday we have our uh, people strategies peer group and it's on talking about continuing to drive culture and engagement uh, virtually and then on Wednesday um, is our sales peer group, uh, six essential rules for sales negotiation, and obviously everything is online. So obviously, thank you everybody once again uh, for attending today. Have an amazing weekend. Get the shovels out, get the, get the salt out for whatever is coming our way. Um, with that, um, John, if you have anything else to say. Uh, uh, just uh Check out the website. Going, you know what? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go walk my golf course because I can't play it, but I'm allowed to go and walk it. <laughs> Good for my you. golf course had 300 people out there walking it the other day, but we can't get allow 100 out to play it. I don't get that. Weird. But. Please check the uh, the website because there are a number of uh, other events. We actually uh, have started some social networking events to have a little bit of fun and get away from everything COVID. Uh, so I think there's a session planned out like two or three weeks from now. Yeah. But yeah, check the website. There's some, and we're trying to do some, some things to help everybody get together from a social standpoint and just relax and enjoy a bit. Uh, but we do, as Ryan has mentioned, certainly have a number of significant peer groups coming up and another lunch and learn session coming up too. Yeah, so. yeah we're having a, yeah, it's a virtual, uh, virtual uh, lunch hour uh, trivia, a movie trivia social on the 27th of May, uh, 12 to 1. Uh, PM and the first one we did it was on European history. It was really awesome. So we're looking to uh, increase uh, the fun factor on that session in a couple of weeks. So uh, we'll put our heads together and we will get uh, more um, more information out to you guys and uh, get some topics uh, ready for um, the next session in June. So with that, have a great weekend. Great weekend, everybody. Dicheng. Thank you all. Everybody drop by if you want. But Dicheng, what's happening with your teams over in uh, Asia? Or how are they, uh, how's it going for them over there? Well, good question. I think the in China, it's at least 75% open. I think I kind of mentioned this a couple of times. Uh, you know, uh, eventually we get, we will get through this, but it's it's not easy. It takes a lot of discipline. So our office was uh, in Shanghai was about a thousand people. They are pretty much, 80% back in office. And Beijing has about 300 to 400. I don't know the exact number. And they're also pretty much all back in office. Uh, there's not a lot of any reoccurrence of uh, COVID? Uh, or? 
I I think that they have they've been monitoring very carefully and never say never. I guess I think the important yeah. thing is that there's they're pretty disciplined. You know, uh, masks are mandatory and physical distancing mandatory. There's still there's things that they have to observe even in the office. And the way I look at it is what whichever way you decide to open up this business, you can't you know if you cannot see the virus and if if uh, contagiousness is still around. You you must take precaution, right? And uh, it's not that the, the virus doesn't disappear uh, magically; it's still around. So we, unless you have a unless you have a vaccine, uh, you, you still have to be very wary of it. <clears throat> so really, whichever way, whichever plan you take to sort of open up a business, you still have to be aware of that. Right? And and so that's what people have to do worry work on. We can't um, see it, but it can see us. Yes, that's right. That's right. Oh yeah. One thing. Thank you, everybody. Oh wait, Barry. Actually, one oh. thing that came across the news line: uh, StatsCan is uh, reporting uh, nearly two million jobs, uh, or two million plus Canadians unemployed at this particular moment. It's tough. That's well, twenty point five million in the states, fourteen point seven percent unemployment rate. So that's going to have its impact. And, and you know what? Back back to Ryan's discussion earlier. Like, there is a massive amount of people out there that are still officially employed. Yeah, but they're only employed because of the Q's program. And a lot of those people have seen their, regardless of their salary, it's been cut to a maximum of $847 a week. Yeah. Right. Like we, we yeah, it's a lot bigger than those numbers are touching on. Right. Yeah. That's okay. True. On that uh, depressing note. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get over. We'll get through this. We will get through this. We will get through this. That's the important part. I think I'm going to go and have a Bailey's and coffee as opposed to just a coffee. <laughs> Let's walk back to the golf course. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, folks, have a great weekend. Yeah, Take care. Thank you, everyone.